0: and welcome on Conversations with Grand Changemakers in Japan. I'm Helen, the co-founder of EcoLocal and the founder of Motainai Transition, and I will be your host on this podcast. The goal of these discussions is to bring along passionate individuals to talk about various topics around ecology and well-being in Japan. This episode is a collaboration between EcoLocal, Motainai Transition, Fab Café Tokyo and Global Goals Jam Tokyo. Today, we are welcoming our guest speaker, Asby Brown. Asb is originally from the US, but has lived in Japan since 1985. He is a leading authority on Japanese architecture, design, and environmentalism, and the author of several books, amongst which, Just Enough, Lessons in Living Green from Traditional Japan, which was published in 2010. On top of that, since the Fukushima disaster, Asb has been lead researcher for Safecast. Safecast is a highly successful, global, volunteer-based citizen science organization devoted to developing new technology platforms for crowdsourced environmental monitoring. We will talk about his story and how he got interested in the topic of circular economy in Edo times. The discussion was very rich and many great resources were shared in the chat, which you will find in the article on Motanei Transition website. I'm now leaving you with our guest. Enjoy the discussion. So before we move into the meaty part of the discussion, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your background, where you're from, and exactly what you do for a living? Yeah,
1: I'm uh, from New Orleans in the United States, in the state of Louisiana, not too far from Kelsey. She's from Florida. And New Orleans is sort of an older city, Uh, with a lot of older buildings. And I mean, from 18th century, 19th century, a few from earlier. And it's a very, let's call it a a well-worn and very human environment. And I was really lucky to grow up there. I was interested in the arts and performing arts and things growing up. But in university, I went to Yale College. I became very interested in architecture and sculpture and more about making things. And learned as much as I could about Japanese architecture and Japanese culture. And a few years after I graduated in 1980, I was able to come to Japan. And ultimately, you know, I came back with a grant from the Japanese Ministry of Education to do a master's degree, and I started to study really very seriously temple carpentry. So I spent about three years documenting the work of the last great temple carpenter in Nara. His name was Tsunekazu Nishioka, and that had a huge influence on my thinking. I was also very interested in contemporary Japan, in the use of resources, the use of compact space, the use of very challenging situation for Japan in many regards uh, for resources and space, and I did a lot of work and writing about that as well. And and then I began teaching at a university in Kanazawa, retired a few years ago, at a laboratory called the Future Design Institute uh, for about uh, 12 years. And now I teach at Musashino Art University in the sculpture department and continue to do other projects, writing and research as well. And you mentioned my book, Just Enough, which was published in 2010. And that was kind of a, a bookend for me, a partner book to the first one I wrote, which was about the temple carpentry. So there's some very related themes through that. And now, I, as you mentioned, I work with Safecast, which is an MPO that began after the triple disaster in, in 2011, specifically focused on enabling people to crowdsource radiation measurements and put them in the public domain in the form of online maps, etc. And I'm very involved with that. Uh, it's a whole new life, whole new career for me since 2011, basically working on radiation Issues and communication issues about that.
0: I wanted to ask you actually, uh, you know, how and when you became aware of the, the issue with climate change and other environmental issues.
1: Uh, Very early, actually. I would say I was lucky in university to meet people through architecture, you know, other architecture students who were interested in recycling issues, who were interested in self-sufficiency, in sustainability. And again, we're talking the late 1970s. So in some ways, these were sort of very new ideas for a lot of people. And we, you know, I did many projects that were totally done with recycled materials, like going into buildings that were being demolished and taking the stones and bricks and things like that to reuse and building houses and things like that and also working on projects with solar power and you know self-sufficient farming and things like that i've always maintained an interest in it and um, japan was a very rich source of ideas uh, for that
0: do you feel this has uh, influenced then in the way you know you chose your path of research and even your personal life
1: I think so. Absolutely. One thing I guess I'd like to point out, I mentioned that the book Just Enough was sort of a bookend to the book about temple carpentry, and it's called The Genius of Japanese Carpentry. And when I would speak with this master carpenter who is now, at the time he was in his mid-80s, and for someone in the United States and most of the world, if you think about what does it mean to be a good carpenter? We think about, well, the dimensions are correct. It fits and the finish is very nice, maybe beautiful. But for a Japanese carpenter, that's the absolute bare minimum. A good carpenter is focused on understanding wood as a living being and how it grew, what kind of environment it grew in, and based on that, how it may change over time. And the thinking of master carpenter like Nishoka is based on 1,000 years, a 1,000-year time span. So in the old days, and now it's very difficult to do this, they would use a tree that was 1,000 years old for the big columns and things. And then if they build the building well, then that building can be used for 1,000 years or more. And in Japan, we have several buildings, including the one Yakushiji Temple in Nara, which Master Nishioko was rebuilding when I was studying his work, and another one called Horyuji, and they're 1,300 years old. And for us, you know, this building for that sense of permanence or that sense of time is very unfamiliar. But for him and for these carpenters, it was a matter of course. So this idea of, yeah, what we do now, our own life and our own time is fairly insignificant compared to this time span of doing something enduring for the future. So that was really, you know, eye-opening for me and, and kind of shocking in a way. In my conversations with Master Nishioka, when I would ask him, well, why do you do it this way? Or why do you leave a gap here in this part of the, the building? And it would always come down to the tree as a living organism, the response to the environment, environmental characteristics, uh, moisture, you know, wind, rain, how the sunlight would affect the things, etc. And they really seem to have an understanding of this as a totality and within this constantly evolving and shifting system of influences in the environment. So they never thought of it as sustainable, maybe have rejected that term, but they were building something that would be constantly renewed and elements could be reused and it would stay in use for centuries or, or millennia. So everything always came back to how does the natural materials respond to their environment? And that was something that was the key. And as I would spend time with people like lacquer urushi, Japanese lacquer experts, or people working with other crafts, They all had some foundation, a very fundamental understanding and appreciation of these environmental factors and handed down as a kind of oral tradition of understanding the relationship among things in the the natural world. But they all were concerned about this and, you know, spoke about things in terms of whether they were alive or not alive. So lacquer artists talk about the lacquer being alive, uh, which in the case of lacquer actually is because it has enzymes in it that are actually alive while it's being, you know, made. So that was really a very big, a formative, you know, lesson for me. And, And it led to ultimately my focusing on Edo period and how they dealt with their great environmental challenges to make what was really kind of a model of sustainable society or circular economy that lasted about 250 years.
0: You were starting to mention circular economy. What does really circular economy mean for you?
1: It's interesting that the the term circular economy has seemed to have stuck. It it seems to be a way to phrase it in in a way that people can understand in grass. It's about things going around and coming back. And a circular economy, as it's commonly understood now, involves rather than having a linear line of production where you get resources, you extract them, you, you maybe grow them, and then you make something out of that, and then it's manufactured, it's sold, it's used, and then it becomes old and discarded and then goes into landfill or is incinerated. This is a linear process from what we call uh, cradle to grave, uh, the circular economy, uh, it's well embodied by a phrase called cradle to cradle that says, well, no, these things should feed back into. The system. Everything we make should have a path back to being turned into usable things again. And recycling, as we practice it, is one step towards that. But as we probably know, if I'm recycling a plastic bottle, a PET bottle, polyethylene bottle, I'm really not going to be able to make new bottles out of that it will go to a lower quality plastic good maybe something like playground equipment or plastic barriers you know uh, for the road some things are very recyclable like glass and metal but paper for instance if you recycle paper a beautiful magazine you can't make another beautiful magazine page out of that you can make maybe newsprint or maybe a low quality paper towel or ultimately you know it's going to end up as, as landfill so circular economy means trying to develop ways to make things and use materials that closes this loop that as much as we can can be what we call upcycled back into the system to manufacture things and the idea i think it has really roots and the term maybe first emerged in the 1970s with some thinkers and lately we see a lot of serious interest On the part of, of course, big organizations, uh, even certain governments, I think the Netherlands now has a a, a main thrust towards developing a circular economy by 2030 or 2050 or something like that. So it is about reusing things as completely as possible to eliminate the waste and with the understanding that this doesn't limit economic activity or economic benefit for people.
0: What made you actually want to talk about circular economy in the edo era and How did you discover more about that?
1: It's connected with what I mentioned earlier about this notion of building with a sense of time of a thousand years and also dealing with incredible limitations on resources. And I had heard lots of anecdotes, you know, comments by different people as I'm researching architecture or researching crafts, where people say, oh, you know, in the Edo period, they recycled a lot. Or in the Edo period, they did things this way, or they did things that way. They used human waste for fertilizer. And I sense that there was a big story there. If we could understand more completely how they did what they did, actually what they accomplished and how they did what they did. So I began to study that. And the real impetus for me was... I had been invited in 2006 to a sustainability conference in Sun Valley, and I was invited by uh, William McDonald, who is an architect who works very well. I mean, he has done very good things with uh, sustainable design, also has pushed the cradle-to-cradle methodology, and I think the sponsor was Teresa Heinz, who was the heiress of the huge Heinz uh, fortune from Pittsburgh. and did a lot to fund and remediate former factory sites in Pittsburgh. Very interesting uh, person. So as I was talking with these sustainable experts from you know around the world, working in different areas, one person on agriculture, one person on forestry, one person on water, and they were talking to each other in a shared language. And I got the sense that, you know, they were ready to build on each other's knowledge and do it in a cooperative way. And I was presenting about compact home design in Japan. And there was a lot of questions from there. What does it mean to make a, a small ecological footprint house? And how does this emerge from Japanese resource limitations, etc.? And I thought, well, actually, hearing the people here, they would probably be interested in knowing more about the traditional Japanese practices that I was, I was learning about. And that became several years of study and research about the Edo period, which focused on how their systems connected. Many of the audience, I think, are familiar with Japan and the Edo period, but this was the period from about 16 early 160, 1600, 1603 or so, that lasted until the country opened up to the West in the late 1860s. And the period before that had been wars all over the country, civil wars, and, and one uh, daimyo fighting against another. But uh, the country was unified by Tokugawa Ieyasu. And one of the first things he did, he says, We're going to stop foreign trade. We're going to stop all this stuff. Our country, you know, we have terrible environmental degradation. We deforested things. It's leading to the verge of, of collapse, flooding, and all sorts of stuff. Let's, let's get control of our home environment. Uh, and focus on improving the quality of life of people in the country without having to have foreign trade and abandoning this idea of having this endless growth and, and conquest. So it was a conscious decision on the part of the government to focus inward on using the resources on the home islands as much as possible. And this led to a lot of wonderful designs and a lot of wonderful ways to use things.
0: I understood from talking to you that there was, uh, and reading a bit about that in your book, that there was different parallel economies and systems in the Mm Edo time.
1: There were. Again, many of the audience, I think, are familiar with this, but Japan had a kind of social hierarchy. It was a caste society. At the top were the samurai, including the shoguns and the top leaders, and they were a relatively small proportion of the society. Under them were the farmers. The farmers were the next elite, and this was 80% of the society. And then you had craftspeople, 20% or so, and then you had merchants. And they functioned economically with at least three overlapping economic systems at the same time. The first is, you know, the farmers grew rice and had to pay that as tax. And that uh, was what was used to fund the government and to pay the samurai, who got paid in a stipend, an annual stipend of of rice, which they would have to sell on the market for money to, to pay for things. So rice was the fundamental basis of value. In the nation. Samurai were discouraged from, you know, earning money. They were not supposed to have a job and try to make money. That was considered immoral, certainly unethical beneath their station. The merchants, on the other hand, they functioned within the cash economy. They were all about earning money and money exchange and business, etc. And partly because of that, were considered sort of ugly or kind of, you know, um, not as honorable as farmers, for instance, or even craftsmen, or certainly as samurai. Meanwhile, there was this custom, of sharing excess, and in Japan it's called susuwake, which is still done. If I'm growing food and I have excessive eggplants, then I would distribute that to my neighbors and relatives. And then another neighbor or relative would have too many apples and they would distribute that. And this is another kind of circular economy where people just donate well, they sort of pay into the system and ultimately it comes back and they benefit from that. One interesting thing is that as time went on towards the end of the Edo period, the last 100 years and certainly the last 50 years, the samurai, there was this terrible inflation and they, they were going broke. They couldn't live on this fixed income they had. So they started to grow food. They would you know, turn half of their garden or more into uh, vegetable plots, and they would grow food, and they couldn't sell it. They would consume it in their family and then share the excess. So they were having to depend on this very fundamental system that is not exactly barter, but very similar to barter. So these three systems, the rice, the cash, and the sharing of surplus uh, coexisted. And were very important to different degrees for people of different, you know, statuses in the society. I mean, we think, oh, we have to depend on money, but it's not necessarily true. I mean, there's other ways to deal with um, needs and to get needs met besides simply using cash for everything.
0: And do you have actually some examples. I know you share a couple in, uh, in your book, that uh, some example of the good use of resources during the time.
1: Yeah, there's so many. And, I focused on seeing how the system's connected. So I have to say, you know, I'm not the first person to research this stuff. And there had been, you know, many Japanese researchers whose work I studied and who I learned a lot from. One big difference is that Research tends to be very specialized. So if there's someone studying forestry, they may not know much about agriculture or urban design. If someone is studying, you know, water systems, they may not know much about waste management, for instance. So um, I sort of tried to see how these systems linked up because they're all connected. There are simple examples like If you think of water and energy and uh, forests or trees and waste and other things as sort of different poles on a circle, there's lines or vectors that can connect them. So for instance, a vector that could connect water and energy would be making hot water. If you're going to make hot water, you need to put energy unless it's a natural hot spring and that requires fuel. And Japan basically uh, was using wood for fuel and, and maybe charcoal. It's before the uh, fossil fuel era. And they were also trying to preserve forests at the same time that it appeared. So they're trying to minimize the use of fuel. So people in the rural areas, they would uh, only be allowed to gather wood that had fallen naturally in the forest. And there there is something called the Satoyama, which is the sort of forest area around the village, which was used for resources they could pick foods, you know, various wild vegetables, and they would gather their firewood and other things there. They weren't allowed to cut trees to make fuel, so they had to preserve it. People in the cities would burn charcoal, Uh, which was actually a form of income for people in the rural areas. They would make charcoal from the wood and they would be able to sell it. But anyway, if you're making hot water, you want to save the fuel and save the hot water. Uh, One result is the Japanese public bath system. The sento which still exists these days where people go to the public bath and they were very hygienic and every neighborhood in the cities had public bath and you'd go and you'd pay a certain amount of money. If you have a big tub with hot water, maybe in one day, up 200 people or more could use that hot water and they would scrub outside the tub and that kept the water fairly clean. If you have a big tub, a public bath, and everyone's using the hot water, you're minimizing the amount of fuel compared to if they were all making hot water for a bath at their own home. And also if you went in, you paid your money, it's even like today, you pay your money, you would get one bucket full of hot water for your personal use that's it. So this is a way of saving fuel that the society sort of arrived at for many reasons, but mainly because of the economic benefit of that. So that's just one example. Another example of great You know, use of resources is people would grow rice, as I mentioned, both for food and the farmers need to pay it as tax to the government. Uh, So of course, the rice kernels themselves are used, but rice has a husk on each kernel that would be removed and then had lots of uses. They could use it for abrasives or use it for many things. You could eventually compost it, for instance, or you could even burn it for fuel. And then there's bran on the rice. I mean, we understand, I think most of us, that brown rice is more nutritious. And even in Japan, people in the rural areas would prefer brown rice if they had it. The polished white rice was more valuable and used for the, you know, for tax and use for elites, et cetera. But the bran itself had a lots of uses. It's called Nuka. It could be used for cosmetics and used for making pickles and things. But the amazing thing was the straw, the rice straw, it's called wada. This was used to make household goods of every kind from sandals to boots to cushions to raincoats to hats to bags to everything and every household would be using this rice straw to make things they need and it's fully used and then when it's worn down it it needs to be replaced then that could then be composted and put back into the agricultural cycle or it could be burned also for fuel and would leave an ash that was rich in potassium. And then they would take the ash and save that. And that could be used for pottery or for metal making and things. So this stuff was constantly, constantly being reused and a very, very thorough use of the materials. And if I give one more example, buildings i mean japanese buildings i talked about the temples that i was studying they're built with joints and pegs and wedges to hold them together and it means they can be dismantled and this process of dismantling them was important for periodic maintenance they would go through and say oh this piece has got some termites in it or this one's rotten and they could dismantle it and and replace it it also meant that the building could be entirely dismantled when it was you know It had to be destroyed. And the big beams and columns had a high value, a resale value. And there were lumber yards in the cities like Edo, which was what Tokyo was called before, that sold only recycled lumber. And so if I needed to build something, I could talk to the carpenter and say, don't buy new wood, you know, use recycled wood for this. And he could get it. And the building system of Japan was very modular with very kind of a systematic dimensions for things. So it was kind of easy to reuse stuff. Roof tiles could be reused easily. Every metal fitting, the gutters and stuff that could be reused. Floorboards, these big thick boards could be planed down smooth and reused. Things like bamboo that might've been used for wall covering or as details in the house might even be prized. It might even get a lot of money if a tea master would find that it was particularly beautiful and wanted to use it for the tea ceremony. The walls were made of clay, kind of clay plaster that would be crumbled off. And of course, you could just strew it across the garden if you want, or a lot of that would be reused and mixed in with new clay. The people who were the wall plasters, they preferred to use a certain proportion of old clay from old walls to mix in with the new walls. So almost everything was reused. And, uh, you know, it's so different from the day if you wanna knock down a concrete building, you know, you can crumble it and pulverize it. And then what are you gonna do? You're gonna make landfill. Although there is some developments for finding other ways to use that. So total reuse of buildings, no matter uh, when and where they were constructed. And again, I wanna stress that my interest in this and what I hope people take away from, you know, my writing on it is not that, oh, we should go back to the old days. You know, we should live in old Japanese houses. It's the thinking behind it. Where we talk about the notion of killing two birds with one stone. And in Japanese it's called iseki nicho. And I was learning that in Japan it was more like killing five birds with one stone. That solutions that lasted lasted because they solved or helped solve many problems at once and understood the interconnectedness of the problems. So I call them multi-form solutions. And I hope that people learn to sort of think in that way, that designers can think in that way.
0: Actually, there's an interesting question or comment in the chat about the water management. How did people took the water and then put it back to the rivers like in a clean way?
1: You know, water management was really very sophisticated in Japan. And, you know, the country did not have a lot of resources and still doesn't, but it was had a lot of water, good water. Fresh water, steep mountains, the water is moving very quickly. So there was always a very good fresh water supply. But they took care not to pollute it. So, for instance, our solution to toilets is to use water to flush things into the rivers or whatever and then you may have to take that and purify it and it's a very laborious and wasteful system Uh, they didn't do that they simply would use a latrine and take that human waste out and have it composted which would kill most of the pathogens and then they could reuse it in agriculture Uh, so they avoided polluting the water very much in household use uh, for instance farms were very interesting Japanese I mean farms everywhere are really interesting especially pre-modern pre-industrial Farms in many places of the world have a similar kind of thinking and, and understanding. But for instance, water that was used in the house for washing, like in the sink, that would then be brought into the farm pond. Every farm had a pond, which was not for drinking, but for basically meeting almost every other need for water, for washing, etc., or for soaking bales of rice to sprout them, etc. So things were designed that the water would go back into being available. And this was just kind of the way people did it. You know, there may be uses where they put it into a stream or something, but basically they would uh, try to make sure that water didn't pollute the rest of the environment. Another example that I was going to touch on is in terms of agriculture. Uh, Japanese had basically imported from Asia very early, more than a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, a rice cultivation, which is a rice paddy, which gets filled with water. And of course they're usually in terraces with a step by step, by step, by step. And, You know, these days you'd have an irrigation system that has pipes and concrete and stuff. But at the time, they needed to um, use the natural rivers and creeks to provide the source of water. It included finding natural ponds. It would be called a tameike because when they want to fill the rice paddies, they need to do it quickly. So they'd have a sort of a natural pond and maybe they make some extra channels to bring it through. Um, In more recent years, researchers have studied uh, the water quality of a system like this, and they determined that what in Japanese is called a dandanbatage, so this sort of terraced rice field system, the water that would emerge at the end of that chain of terraces was basically cleaner than the water that went in, which is kind of amazing. Now, the nowadays, of course, we have, uh, you know, we use fertilizers and a lot of things that will change that. But in the traditional system, it acted as a water filtration system, much like natural wetlands do. And the plants would take up uh, heavy metals and other pollutants, etc. So for me, again, it's like, wow, I'm not just saying we should just use rice fields to purify our water. But the notion that the water that comes out of a system like agriculture or maybe manufacturing should be cleaner than the water that goes in. If we adapted that value, uh, then a lot of our understanding of the problems would change. So this was another issue. And I I think they were aware of this to some degree. They may not have had the scientific measurement ability to actually check that. But I think they understood that when the water came out, all the birds and fish and everyone was very happy with that water. So, you know, uh, they understood that was kind of a a health system to begin with.
0: So you were talking a little bit about uh, building an architecture earlier. So can you tell us a bit more about the, maybe the design of houses, especially what we can see today in Kyoto and how that plays out in terms of like a small ecosystem?
1: Uh, Yeah, they were really beautiful, small ecosystems. And there's a lot of features of a traditional house that are worth learning from. I would say one way to put it is that the traditional Japanese house was an almost ideal example of uh, what we call passive solar architecture, basically using solar energy well and also of passive cooling. And Japan, of course, tends to be very hot and humid in the summer. And at some point, I mean, the culture evolved where people would meet their needs for heating as minimally as possible. They'd wear warmer clothing, quilted kimonos and things, and sit by a small charcoal brazier that would just heat the area right around where they're sitting. You would have a big hearth in farmhouses, um, and irori that would be used for cooking and also provided heat. But basically, they decided to sort of deal with the cold, but do whatever they could to make the house more naturally cool. So a lot of the design of Japanese houses is about being able to control the amount of opening to the exterior and between rooms with sliding screens, as we know, fusuma, and shoji screens to allow the breeze to come through and to control it. And it went as far as developing microclimates, small gardens. In the case of Kyoto, they would be in sort of the middle of the house. Kyoto houses are very long and narrow in the urban block, and they always have a small garden called a tsuboniba in the middle. And this is a few degrees cooler Then the rest outside, Uh, because it's very shady, there's always a a water feature, a water source or a pond or a basin of some sort. Uh, It's planted to be very shady as well. So this would be sort of a source of slightly cooler air uh, for the rest of the house. And the rest of the house, again, could be opened up in various ways and the, the passage of wind and breezes through could be controlled. In the case of Edo, which was Tokyo, they didn't have the same long skinny houses, but most houses had a small garden in the back and the next door neighbor's house won the same thing and function in a similar way. Uh, other great things about Chappings House, of course, the eaves were designed to be very, very deep and provide a good shading in the summer over the house. Uh, and then there was something called the Engawa, which is kind of a veranda. And some houses have garden designed to provide food. I mentioned that the low ranking samurai were growing vegetables, but even before that, they would have fruit trees and nut trees, et cetera. And they would always have a water feature, a pond, which was also habitat for animals, you know, fish and frogs and turtles and whatnot. And of course, birds would come and, and, and even cities like Edo, which had a very high population, um, we were also very good habitat for other wildlife.
0: Going back to what you were saying, like killing five birds with one stone, what yeah. can we adopt today in the cities in Japan to try to do that?
1: I don't think I'm telling anyone anything that they're not aware of already, but, you know, our society, our systems of production have become extremely wasteful in many ways. Uh, We have crises. I mean, the Edo period had similar crises. They had high population, but they managed to keep the population stable. Um, They had a bit of urbanization, but they had great limits to their energy supply, great limits to other resources. They had to figure out how to feed the population Uh, So a lot was done to improve uh, farm productivity, but without using what we would call artificial fertilizers, try to find ways to develop the systems of farming to provide more food, again, in a way that didn't pollute, that maintained the health of the overall environment. You know, we're facing a lot of the same issues. And I would say uh, production systems have been, again, one way More and more, you know, manufacturers, because consumers are increasingly demanding it, are manufacturing everything from automobiles to appliances to make them more easily recyclable. And that's a very good thing. Uh, where, you know, they're made to be kind of more easily dismantled uh, and the metal parts can be easily recycled and some parts may be less so, but this is a very good thing. I think food production is something to focus on very much. And we have had what we call the green revolution, which is producing a lot of food and feeding a lot of people. And there's a lot of great population growth. But of course, the costs, the environmental costs have been very great. I think There's a lot of room to rethink that. How can we do this in a more sustainable way? Which is connected, among other things, to transportation. This notion that we're transporting food and other things, great distances. There's the whole movement of the localization movement, which I think you're addressing yourself. Trying to do things more locally certainly can help minimize the waste of the transportation systems involved in providing the stuff that we need. There are other things as well, but I want to stress that in Edo period, Japan... These systems weren't sort of designed from scratch. They evolved over time. Government had important roles. They could pass laws to say, you can't cut down trees in this forest. Or you farmers should learn how to grow cotton because, you know, it's more hygienic, etc. You know, it, it makes better clothes and it'll improve your health if you're wearing cotton clothes, which actually happened a few hundred years before that. But basically, it's economic necessity, people finding a way to maximize the use of things because of the cost savings that that leads to them. So people will have an economic incentive. And there's an expression that people vote with their pocketbook. And it's really about that. It's it's deciding that, oh, yeah, I'm going to decide uh, what I'm going to spend my money on based on these other considerations. Other big point is that there is an underlying value system, or there had been in Japan, which was anti-waste, the idea of conspicuous consumption with some minor exceptions of certain wealthy merchants and maybe daimyo, the, the lords, you know, they had to be very showy in their consumption. Basically, someone who was conspicuously consuming things was considered kind of an ugly person. They're not recycling, they're not taking care, they're not avoiding waste. And, and this expression, motainai, that is in currency and part of our program here, um, this comes from that as well. And again, this is connected to some degrees to certain Buddhist thinking. And my title, the title of my book, Just Enough, actually comes from a sort of Buddhist expression, which is carved onto a, a water basin at Ryoanji Temple in Kyoto, which is Ware tada taru o shiru. And it means I only need enough. I only know enough or only think about having enough. You don't need more than enough. So this is a fundamental value system. And for me, it, it's, it's a very beautiful thing. But... We hear time and again from people, well, this will never work. We have to you know, have economic growth, et cetera, et cetera. The Edo period, actually, again, in terms of government policy, was consciously anti-growth. And this was tied to Confucian values of what does it mean to have good governance and to take care of people? You know, make sure people are having a good lifestyle. They're getting fed. They're having an improvement in the quality of their life.
0: When do you think there was this shift from this kind of thinking to where we are today with this over-consuming society.
1: The fossil fuel system came in, and then the class system broke down. You didn't have samurai anymore. And uh, they kind of unleashed a better life. They wanted new stuff. I mean, Japan was always, especially in the merchant classes, always novelty driven, always looking at what's new and what's trendy. So this suddenly became throughout the society and you had this manufacturing of inexpensive goods that could meet it. And this grew from the end of the 19th century into the 20th century and really changed the society very much. At the same time, this sort of anti-waste ethic, uh, this was very strong, had been strong Certainly until the end of the Second War. I mean, this was a very big part of the Japanese government propaganda. And the Second War is was don't waste things, you know, like it is in wartime everywhere. At the end of the war, it's something, wow, we want to be like America. You know, we want big cars, we want a big house, we want to eat hamburgers, you know. And that changed everything from how people eat to how they get around to the clothes they wear. So it's a long process that sort of meant the breakdown of a former system and the replacement of one that was primarily economically and market-driven. And also linked to growth, where growth was one of the primary goals.
0: And do you feel we could go back, not saying we should go back to Edo era, but this kind of uh, circular thinking?
1: I think, you know, it will require demand on the part of individual consumers about what they want to use and eat and how they want to get around in life. And it's interesting because we see what happened during the last, this past year with the Isolation from coronavirus and the huge change in cities like Paris, where suddenly they're becoming pedestrian and full of bicycles and people are reclaiming the streets. And this to me is really great. And I think there's more about the importance of density in cities. I mean, Edo, Japan and Osaka and this time were very dense for the time very very densely populated and we see now you know that densely populated cities denser cities are actually more efficient in terms of resource use certainly energy use and other resources the american model of the suburb with everyone has their own house and you have to drive there we see the problems with that and that hopefully can begin to change as well
0: there was a few more questions but so we are kind of getting out of time
1: Horse pavements, that's a great one. Uh, the bath water in the washing machine, wonderful example. People still do that. That's a very circular Edo kind of idea. The pump from the f- bath to go to your washing machine. Like 60% of households do that here. Japanese cities' buildings have a shorter lifespan. Yeah, this is preposterous. The scrap and build system. People are understanding here that they should build more permanently if they can. Um, yes, toilets where the water is used to wash your hands, wonderful. These are disappearing now though with washlets and other things. And more technically advanced toilets, I see this gradually, gradually disappearing. Rice husks can be used for good house insulation. What a brilliant idea. People should be doing that as well. Um, let me look at some others. Um, the ability to reuse and rebuild behind what we see to this day scrap and build. That is probably true. This idea that, yes, you can always rebuild it and this is some sort of metabolistic process could be feeding into this notion of, yes, just take it down and put up a new one. But of course, missing this important factor of reusing the previous elements. Um, I see uh, Peter Bellers, hi Peter, uh, talking about the water. He was talking about oil. Yes, there was not much oil used in cooking in Japan. There was some, but it's true. So that wasn't polluting it and almost no soap. It was, like I said, nuka and other things, abrasive used to wash things. Ellen MacArthur, Foundation is a major force promoting circular economies and I think doing very good work uh, people who are interested should pay attention to that C.W. Nickel, he passed away uh, but his institute in Nagano I think is still still going on, beautiful forest institute. David Zugi is interesting, he's also very good friends with Cable Oiwa uh, you know they they've written books together. Uh, very interesting, very local, and also very Japanese influenced thinking. Uh, very globally minded, though. So very interesting people there. Transition towns are great. The Schumacher Institute in in England, Satish Kumar, kind of a guru sort of figure, brilliant man. They've done very good work related to transition towns, etc. In the UK, and there is sort of Japan transition towns organizations. I don't know how active or how, what scale they're they're actually working on, but they are. So yeah. Other things that people want to read, I encourage you to read Cradle to Cradle by William McDonough and, and Michael Braungart. People who want to know about Japan in particular, I encourage them to read Whatever They Can Find by Yuko Tanaka who's a friend of mine, who I've learned a lot about. Uh, She has an essay called The Cyclical Sensibility of Edo Period Japan, which you can find online at Japan Echo. Other books are not translated to English, but very, very interesting thinker who looks at everything from information to, um, you know, fundamental values to textiles to everything else. There's a lot of other things about Japan in my book. Just enough, I have an extensive bibliography, uh, books about um, what people use every day in their household, books about forestry, uh, particularly by Conrad Talkman of Yale University, who I learned a lot from about how the Japanese managed forests and, and developed regenerative forestry, where if you cut down a tree, you have to replant several more because they're mm-hmm. not all going to survive. And how do you build a system to monitor the growth of these trees over 50 years, which means three human generations? So they developed all this stuff and made this beautifully regenerative forestry. Other things, uh, maybe people are familiar with the new Alchemy Institute, which was one of the things that really got me interested in this thinking back in the 1970s. It was run by John and Nancy Todd, and it's now pretty much ended, but they did what they called a bio-shelter which were using uh, internal environments with what we call microclimates, introducing other pests and animals to take care of insects and stuff. For instance, having big tanks of water that were translucent that would grow algae. They were solar gain. They would maintain solar, solar heat, solar mass, and then the sunlight would cause algae to grow. And you put fish in there like tilapia, which eat the algae. And then you can eat the fish and the fish are pooping. And then you can take that sludgy, poopy water and use it to fertilize, you know, the plants that you're growing all within this sort of beautifully closed uh, ecosystem within a building. Beautifully innovative stuff back in the 70s and 80s. So there's a lot of things that have influenced my thinking of this. And, uh, you know, it's an ongoing thing. And I study Japan, but almost every pre-industrial culture in the world has similar thinking. And there's a lot we can learn from.
0: Do you know any organizations in Japan, like more focused on Japan, that are looking at the space of circular economy? There's
1: a few and and of different types. Um, You know, I'm good friends with a guy, his name is Keibo Oiba, and his Japanese pen name is Suji Shinichi, and he has something called the Namakemono Club, the Sloth Club. Uh, which is all about uh, slow life and localization. And he's a major proponent of localization. Among other things, he's very close and works with Helena Norberg-Hodge, who uh, has done great work in uh, DAC. And she has a group called Futures, which talks about localization, localism, uh, and is a major proponent. So her writing, her work is good. There's also a Japanese chapter of the Local Futures Institute as well. There are others I am really interested in what happens in local regions in Japan. I mean, there are national umbrellas, but every time I go to the countryside, and including Fukushima, there are groups uh, of people locally who are working on these issues out of the same sense of of need and kind of emergency, as we're discussing here now. So there's lots of places, lots of groups locally. There's permaculture groups, there's urban farming groups, there's all kinds of groups in Japan uh, doing this stuff.
0: How do we actually find those local groups? What's the best way to reach them?
1: How this works is it for me it's always been word of mouth but I think if you go and again a lot of them are Japanese language only, uh, which may be a problem for some people but I think if you look sustainability you know group or if you look you know urban farming group, uh, you can find them. And, uh, and they're there and usually very approachable. You know, everyone wants to have people involved. There's many groups working on forestry issues. Japan forests are kind of in a terrible situation. There are lots of abandoned forests. The wood is not being cut because you can import cheaper wood from Southeast Asia or other places. So there's lots of abandoned forests. And they were grown as monocultures, only cedar, sugi for instance, and these are not good forests. So there's a movement to cut this stuff and replant it as a mixed forest with mixed hardwoods and coniferous kind trees, et cetera. So there's groups like that all over the country as well. It's about networking and hearing from people. There's something happening, and these people really should get to know these people. And these people are doing straw bale architecture. It's a wonderful straw bale architecture association that helped me with my exhibition recently in Tokyo. And they're connected with people I know in other parts of the country who are doing traditional building, Uh, They're all sort of forming. And and this is the thing I want to point out. This is happening on a grassroots level. And it's been happening and building for decades. I mean, government policy is important in certain ways, but they can't mandate very much. And people will not cooperate. But at a grassroots level, it's happening. Like, we like to do it this way. This way seems better to us. Uh, We feel better. It suits our value. It suits our sense of what we should do as humans for the future. So it happens on a grassroots level. Based on the questions, a lot of, these are not many questions of the resources people are sharing, which is great. I mean, I, say, yes. I feel like I'm preaching to the converted. <laughs> uh, probably most of the people here get it already. And, and that's why you tuned in. Um, and it's always the skeptics that are difficult. And I believe me, uh, I have lots of cousins in the United States who refuse all of this. They just don't believe climate change is happening. And if it is, it's not humans, et cetera. It's really, really depressing. Um, how many people still feel that way and it's people on the fence that need to be reached and if they can be shown that you can change the way you live in a way that's beneficial for the environment that does use resources better for instance and you don't suffer because of it you know you're not like eating more poorly or colder or wearing scratchier clothes or something (laughs) it's the designs are becoming more and more sophisticated and better and better all the time people need to be persuaded that this can happen plus that there's economic benefit
0: yes I agree with you It can be a joyful transition. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. And uh, take care.
1: Enjoy yourselves. Take care.
0: Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You will find all the notes from the discussion on Motainai transition website. Motanei-transition.com If you like the podcast, don't hesitate to leave a rating on your favorite podcast app. Matane.